welcome to The Motivated Mind, where I challenge you to expand your perspective on how to achieve a successful life through motivational lessons, reflections, and interviews with other motivated minds. Welcome back to The Motivated Mind, a top 100 health podcast, thanks to each of you. This is episode 262, and I'm your host, Scott Lynch. Thanks so much for listening. If I brought you any value, please be sure to leave a review and hit that subscribe or follow button. Don't be a stranger. Shoot me a DM on Instagram or Facebook and let me know what you want to hear more of, and please be sure to share the podcast. Today we have another special guest that joins the pod, Dr. Christopher M. Palmer, a Harvard psychiatrist and researcher working at the interface of metabolism and mental health. He is the director of the Department of Postgraduate and Continuing Education at McLean Hospital and an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. For over 25 years, he has held administrative, educational, research, and clinical roles in psychiatry at Harvard. He has been pioneering the use of the medical ketogenic diet in the treatment of psychiatric disorders, conducting research in this area, treating patients, writing and speaking around the world on this topic, and most recently, he has developed the first comprehensive theory of what causes mental illness integrating existing theories and research into one unifying theory, the brain energy theory of mental illness. Mental health disorders are on the rise, but buried in misconceptions that have made most treatments ineffective. Surprisingly, new research reveals that mental disorders are metabolic disorders. And this paradigm shift in our understanding will finally point the way to treatments that can change lives. Dr. Palmer and I discuss what led to his journey into mental health, why mental health is mistreated, and how treatments are focused on symptoms, Dr. Palmer's scientific theory on mental health disorders, and how it's actually linked to metabolic disorders of the brain, how these metabolic disorders have influenced the rise in mental health disorders, understanding how a diet can put a chronic brain disorder into remission off medication, and lastly, how all mental health disorders are metabolic brain disorders. I hope you all enjoy our conversation. A quick content warning. This episode contains discussions of death and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts and needs support, please call 800-273-8255 or visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating 
today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like it's allowed me to be more creative because I've been able to simplify the admin aspect of my podcast and focus on developing more valuable and creative content. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. I'm curious what led to your mental health journey, one where you realized that a new approach to mental health treatment was very much needed. Yeah, the, <laughs> the, the, the real answer is that's a, it's a long story, but it starts with my own personal story. So, uh, you know, I will go ahead and open up. We can talk about this as much or as little as you want, but you know, I myself had mental health problems from a pretty young age. I had, you know, OCD at a young age. It was never diagnosed, never even recognized. I didn't know why I was so different, but but I had that. And then due to a series of uh, many family events, a lot of stress and trauma and other things, I went on to develop pretty severe crippling depression, suicide attempt, all sorts of problems until my early adulthood. The, the the good, happy ending for any listeners who are worried about me is I have not had any of those symptoms uh, for over 30 years. So I am somebody who figured out a way to overcome all of that. But the real reason I'm a psychiatrist, if, if I can kind of read between the lines and get to your question, like, why are you a psychiatrist? The real reason I'm a psychiatrist is actually because of my mom. And um, I kind of know my mother or knew my mother in two different ways, you know, before the age of 42 and after the age of 42. So before she, before she was 42, she was a hardworking, good woman, wanted a fairly straightforward, simple, middle-class life. With lots of kids. She and my father wanted four kids, but being Catholic, they ended up with eight. <laughs> and, and at the age of 42, due to a series of horrific things that happened in her family and a lot of stress that was put directly on her, she ended up having what she initially called was a nervous breakdown. And I think in today's you know language, we would call it severe depression. It quickly began to include suicidal thoughts and um, within months actually began to include psychotic symptoms. And my mom was hospitalized and I was quite honestly horrified at what they did to her. They put her on all sorts of medications that simply sedated her and drugged her and they didn't stop her symptoms. Mm. She was still severely depressed. She was still suicidal and she was still psychotic. And uh I was, initially, I kind of felt, you know, just disbelief. Like, can can these medical professionals really be this incompetent? And like, why aren't they doing something? There's clearly something wrong with my mom. I knew that. 
but why aren't these medical professionals doing something helpful? And as opposed to doing something helpful, like what I'm seeing is that they're actually harming her. She's she she can't walk a straight line. She she's slurring her speech now. Her mouth is extraordinarily dry, and none of her symptoms are better. Like what are they doing to her? And that has lived with me to this day. My mom went on to live the rest of her life with a psychotic disorder. She never got better. And she ended up losing everything that she wanted in life. She lost she lost her home. She lost the business that she had helped create. She lost custody of her eight kids. There was a period of time that I actually went to live with her. Shortly when all that was happening, I kind of, at 13 years old, thought I could help save her. And I may have prevented her from committing suicide. Uh, but we were actually in a homeless shelter for a while. And, uh, and so those were horrible, dark days in both my life and her life. But at the end of the day, she never got better. And so fast forward to today now, you know, I've been a, an academic psychiatrist, a researcher for 27 years. And so I have been on the other side of that interaction. I have been the psychiatrist, the incompetent psychiatrist who can't make people with psychotic disorders better. I have been the psychiatrist prescribing those pills that make people sedated and slur their speech and not be able to walk straight lines and gain an enormous amount of weight. And they still continue to suffer. And they're still disabled by their symptoms and their illnesses. And uh, that's where I have been up until about six years ago. Wow. There's so many people that I interact with that have dealt with millions of people that have gone through some sort of mistreatment or been just thrown on medications where there's 17 other side effects and then it's this compounding effect. You know, even my grandfather actually, a Vietnam vet, PTSD, just thrown medication left and right. And it ultimately didn't do anything for him. If anything, it created a bigger rat's nest of how do I get out of this? You know, I, I, I don't, it's almost like being caught in an avalanche where you don't know where North is. Your body's just thrown around metaphorically speaking that I don't know which way to, to swim to get out of this. I'm curious in your professional opinion, why is mental illness so mistreated, especially in this country? So it's a really great question, and it's one that, again, I have struggled with as a psychiatrist. And the first thing I want to say is it is no one's fault. Mental health profession, I'm going to defend the mental health profession, even based on what I just said. Like, And I know what it's like to be angry at the mental health profession. I get it. I, I was there. Uh, certainly as a 13-year-old watching what they were doing to my mom, I was angry at them. Like, But... People who go into the mental health field actually almost, as far as I can tell across the board, maybe there are exceptions, but honestly don't know that I've met those exceptions. Across the board, people who go into mental health go into it because they desperately care about people who are suffering and they desperately want to help them. The challenge is that up until recently, and some will say continuing to this day, I mean, the current answer from our field is no one knows what causes mental illness. Mm. 
um, all we know are some of the risk factors for mental illness. And they include, or some of the biological factors involved. They include things like neurotransmitters, genetics, hormones, but they also include psychological, social things like trauma and stress. And, but how do those fit together? What exactly do those things do to the brain to cause what we call mental illness? Nobody knows. And so without knowing exact causes, all of the treatments that we have, and this includes even psychotherapy, and but definitely includes medications and things like even shock therapy, almost all of the treatments that we have are symptomatic treatments meaning that we are simply treating symptoms of the illness. And if we're lucky, we can make those symptoms reduce, or sometimes we can make those symptoms completely go away and put the illness into remission. But more often than not, for the majority of people, because we are just wildly guessing, you know, because we don't even really know for sure what causes mental illness, and we're not really even sure how or why some of the treatments work, we're just kind of shooting in the dark. We're just randomly trying things with people to see if we can find something that might help. And if you look at the national or international statistics, our track record is pretty poor. We're not really helping as many people as we should be helping. And, you know, for those who feel like maybe I'm being too harsh or, or I'm, you know, being too pessimistic, I just want to point out one simple reality or two simple realities. One is that mental disorders are increasing. They're not staying the same and they're not even decreasing. They're increasing in prevalence. And this includes mental disorders across a broad spectrum. So autism, bipolar, depression, anxiety. And number two, mental disorders are now the leading cause of disability on the planet. And it's not because people aren't getting treatment. It's because our treatments fail to work for them. And why... Why, based on these statistics that you had just shared, and thank you for this, because I, I myself have seen, you know, those close to me, like anxiety going through the roof since COVID and being isolated and kind of taken away from, you know, that normal societal function, if you will, or interactions. Why do you think it is that it has, it hasn't even gone down, nor has it stayed flat? It's increased over the years. What do you think is driving that kind of or part of that momentum or growth? So that is, you know, right now, that's the million or trillion dollar question that everybody is grappling with. And most experts in the mental health field, because they don't know what causes mental illness for sure, they are struggling to explain that. They can't explain that. And there's lots of debate about whether those statistics are even true. I, on the other hand, am proposing a radical new theory that actually puts everything that we know in the mental health field together into one coherent way to understand mental disorders. And in a nutshell, I am proposing a new scientific theory it's not a speculative theory. It's a theory that takes all of the existing research and puts it together. I'm proposing that all mental disorders are actually metabolic disorders of the brain. And we can talk a little bit more about that if you want. But to get back to your original question, so why are mental illnesses increasing? It might not come as a surprise to people, but there are two metabolic disorders that are skyrocketing in prevalence around the world and in the United States. 
And those are the disorders of obesity and diabetes or prediabetes. So obesity rates continue to skyrocket. About, I think it's about 70% of Americans are now overweight or obese. And about half of Americans have prediabetes or diabetes. And I am arguing that those are not isolated statistics and they are not coincidences. At the same time that the metabolic disorders of obesity and diabetes are skyrocketing, it is not at all surprising that the rates of mental illness are also increasing. Is there, in your findings, in your studies, this link with obesity and mental illness? Is, has this data also been found in other countries too as well? Now, I know when we look at America that the rate of obesity is much higher than in many other countries. Have you found in your work this correlation or evidence in other countries too beyond the United States? So yes. And and in many ways, this research is nothing new. So the the relationship between mental illness and, and even serious mental illnesses like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, chronic depression, and type 2 diabetes in particular, those relationships have been observed since the 1800s. So we've known for about 200 years that these things run in families and they run together. But again, people haven't quite understood how they're connected or why they're connected. These relationships absolutely go around the world in many countries. So one really interesting kind of case example is the country of China. So prior to about 30 years ago, China had extraordinarily low rates of obesity and type 2 diabetes. And interestingly, they also had really low rates, certainly much lower rates of mental illness than we have in the United States. Over the past 20 years, rates of obesity and diabetes are skyrocketing in China. And at the same time, coincidentally, rates of mental illness are skyrocketing in China. So that is just one case example of the strong correlation. So correlation doesn't prove causation, but we, we have an abundance of data correlating mental disorders with metabolic disorders. With all of, I, I want to kind of revert back to, to your, your studies and your, your theory here. So what have you really, aside from this, Let's go a little deeper. Bring us a little deeper into into your work and and what you've come to really find out because I think that it can change a lot of people's perspectives and that really in my opinion is the start to to change, right? So, can you bring us on a a deeper dive into your work and and really going deeper into this diet aspect and how it affects our our mental uh health? Absolutely. So, you know, for me, there was one pivotal moment in 2006 that I'll share with you. So prior, or, or 2016, I'm sorry. So prior to 2016, I was just like all other academic psychiatrists. I, I had no idea what caused mental illness, 
but I knew that somehow or another neurotransmitters and hormones and genetics and stress and trauma all seemed to play a role. But how those things fit together, no one knew, I didn't know, and nobody else, you know, most other people today don't know. In 2016, I had a patient who had been a longstanding patient of mine with schizoaffective disorder, which is for listeners who may not be familiar with that, it's kind of a cross between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And he had hallucinations, delusions. He had tried 17 different medications. None of them stopped his symptoms. And he was tormented by his illness. He was essentially a hermit. He had trouble leaving home, just going out in public because he was convinced everybody was out to get him. People were conspiring against him. They could put thoughts into his head. They could read his thoughts. Just the world was an unsafe place for him to be. And at the same time, because he was trying so many medications, he gained an enormous amount of weight. Um, And he weighed 340 pounds and he asked for my help to lose weight. And for a variety of reasons, we ended up deciding to try the ketogenic diet. And I really was just setting out to help the guy lose weight. Within two weeks, not only did he begin losing weight, but I started to notice dramatic changes in his psychiatric symptoms. He was becoming less depressed, less sedated, making better eye contact. Within about six to eight weeks, he spontaneously started reporting to me, you know those voices that I hear all the time? They're going away. And you know how I thought that there were all these families conspiring against me and reading my thoughts and tormenting me on purpose and all that? He said, now that I think about it, I I don't think that's true. And maybe it never was. It, now that I say it out loud, it sounds kind of crazy. And maybe that stuff was never happening. That man went on to lose 160 pounds, and he was able to do things that he had never been able to do since the time of his diagnosis. He can go out in public and not be afraid. He can take public transportation, but he was able to perform a certificate program, complete school stuff. He was actually able to perform improv in front of a live audience. And for him, that would have been impossible prior to this diet. That observation initially just dumbfounded me. I was actually in disbelief. I was like, what on earth is happening? This is impossible. And I quickly learned that the ketogenic diet is actually an epilepsy treatment. And uh, and it's a 100-year-old evidence-based epilepsy treatment. It can actually stop seizures even when medications fail to stop seizures. And the reason that was important to me is because we use epilepsy treatments in psychiatry all the time. Lots of medications that your listeners are probably familiar with, things like Depakote, Tegretol, Neurontin, Topamax, Lamictal, Valium, Clonopin, Xanax, all of those are anti-seizure treatments. And most people know them for the mental health field because they're primarily used in mental health patients. And so armed with that knowledge, I started using this diet in lots of other people and found it equally effective in some and even more effective in others. But I'll also say for the record, it's not a miracle cure. It does not cure everybody and it doesn't work for everybody. So that actually sent me on this deep dive to understand how on earth can a diet put a chronic brain disorder like schizophrenia into full and complete remission. 
And I've also seen it work for major depression and bipolar disorder too. Then government, the federal government, the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism is studying it for alcoholism. The, uh, there are geriatric researchers and neuroscientists studying it for Alzheimer's disease. And so initially that was kind of overwhelming and confusing because I'm like, wait, these are all different disorders. Why is everybody using one treatment? And how is it possible that one treatment could work for all of these different things? That was really one of the first questions that I struggled with. But it sent me on this kind of scientific deep dive journey that I have been on for the last six years, trying to understand and put together with everything that I already knew as a psychiatrist and neuroscience researcher, trying to put it all together to understand, wait, a diet can put a chronic brain disorder into remission off medication. This flies in the face of everything that we have been told about schizophrenia. It flies in the face of everything we're being taught. And at the end of the day, what I came to learn by connecting all of the dots is that, you know, the broad overview is mental disorders, all of them actually, even though that sounds incredible, all of them are metabolic brain disorders. In order to understand what that means, you have to understand metabolism and metabolism is extraordinarily complicated. And there's a lot of stuff we don't even know about it yet. But if you really want to understand metabolism, you have to understand these tiny little things inside most of our cells called mitochondria. And a lot of people know mitochondria as the powerhouse of the cell, but I'm here to tell you they are much, much, much more than that. And over the last 20 years, there's been a whole separate body of research, mostly by cell biologists and metabolic kind of scientists who have been discovering amazing things about what mitochondria do in cells and what mitochondria do for human health. And the more I learned about all of that, the more I could connect the dots of all of the risk factors for mental illness. And, and it helps us therefore understand, oh, these are some of the basic science reasons why people with mental illness have higher rates of heart attacks, have higher rates of obesity and diabetes. They're more likely to die early deaths from heart attacks, primarily. And we can start to answer those questions and make sense of it all. But the much more important thing to me as a psychiatrist is that once you understand this big picture, once you see it, for what it is, we can design treatments to actually put chronic mental disorders into full and complete remission. And some of this, so some people are going to have complicated metabolic problems that are going to require a physician or other clinician to do medical workup and help them figure it out. But I believe a lot of people will be able to use fairly straightforward interventions like diet, exercise, stress reduction, but also a lot of psychological and social things that you've been talking about for years. Meaning and purpose in life, stress reduction, 
So meaning and purpose in life, most people think of that as a psychological construct, and it is. But people who lack a sense of meaning and purpose are much more likely to have not only mental disorders, like depression and anxiety, you know, something else, but they're also more likely to die early deaths from heart attacks. So meaning and purpose influences our metabolism and our brain function. But it goes around in a circle because our brain function also affects our ability to have a sense of meaning and purpose. And so there are different ways to intervene with people. Sometimes we can use more biological things like diet, exercise, maybe even medications or hormonal treatments or other things. But there are also ways to intervene at the psychological and social level in all the ways that you've been talking about, which are let's help people reduce stress. Let's help people find their purpose in their community and, and strengthen relationships and uh, get outside into nature and do all sorts of things that are just good for human health. And good, you know, some people would say they're good for the soul or good for the mind or good for whatever, but they're also good for your physiology, believe it or not. It's actually all connected, even though they're soft things. <laughs> so some, some biologists would say that those are soft. I'm like, no, those are hard facts. They're hard realities of human biology. So that's kind of a quick nutshell. I love this. So you've dedicated now, did you say six years of your life to this work now? It's it's actually all been part-time. I've had my 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 full-time gig at McLean, <laughs> McLean Hospital. So um so I'm the director of education at McLean of, of continuing education, which actually has helped me enormously in all of this work. I've been doing that for 20 years. So I get paid to kind of organize educational conferences. And but as part of that job, I have to sit and listen to experts all the you know all the time, telling us about all of the latest advances in the mental health field. So that's actually been a blessing for me because I uh, am I'm a highly educated person in a way because it's it's a requirement of my job. But yeah, for the last six years, I have been obsessed with this question, and so uh, pretty much work uh, day and night uh, whenever I have free time. I have been spending a tremendous amount of energy and effort on this. So I heard something the other day. I did this. Uh, it was a course accelerator around actually building a course. And the instructor had said something. She had said something that I'm starting to see in you right now. And she said, you know, what's very powerful is having a sticky point of view. And what she had, uh, had explained with the sticky point of view was, is that something that challenges the norm and what most people believe to be true. It throws everything upside down on its head and not for the purpose of being confrontational or sparking an argument, but for the purpose of creating conversation between different sides, different groups. And what I love about what we're talking about here today is that this is something that challenges so much so the norm or what we know to be true, somewhat true. I know there's still a lot of unanswered pieces here, but there's this piece of massive curiosity that I that I see in you. And it's it's amazing meeting someone who just, I want more answers. I need to understand more. 
And I'd love to understand the ultimate wish or hope for you with this work. You know, what is the divine outcome that you look to bring to this world with everything that you've poured into this and you continue to pour into this? And I know that quite frankly, it's been a long journey and it's probably going to be an even longer journey, but what would that ultimate outcome be for you? It's a great question. I think at the end of the day that people like my mother or like myself when I was going through hell and suicidally depressed, that if people like us want help, somebody is going to give them answers. Somebody is going to give them answers that actually help, that actually restore their brain health, that restore their ability to function in the world, and that allow them to be happy, healthy human beings again. The, the reality is not everybody has insight into what we call mental illness. And so not everybody wants help. Not everybody who is overweight or obese wants to lose weight. And that's okay. I'm not here to force anything on anyone. I, I mean, it becomes a very challenging world if we're going to set some ideal standard and say everybody has to fall into this standard of health. But there are tens of millions of people begging for answers. They will do anything to get better. And I guess the divine outcome for me would be, let's give them more effective answers than we're giving them today. For those that are looking for change in their life, are looking for answers, I guess a, a couple of things to, to leave listeners with. Your book comes out November 15th, correct? Yes. People can find that on Amazon. What are some other maybe assessments as an individual that we can take, some practices that we can take if maybe a medical profession professional gets someone a little nervous of visiting or doing? What are some, some changes that they could start to implement in their life to see some of this change? So one, one thing that I'll say is that I'm actually going to create some online assessments, I'm hoping, on this website called brainenergy.com. It is not live yet as we're recording this, but it should be live by November 15, hopefully sooner than that. The, the other thing that I'll say is that the brain energy theory doesn't replace what we already know can work for some people. So psychotherapy, without a doubt, works for lots of people. And I don't want to change that. If, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's a good saying, and I adhere to that. Some people really benefit from antidepressants and they take an antidepressant and it really dramatically improves their life and reduces their symptoms or makes their symptoms non-existent. And I don't want to take that away from those people either. That's not what this is about. But this is for the people who have tried those treatments and those treatments aren't working or haven't worked enough. And so to those people, I want to say in addition to all of the mental health 
checklists that you can do. Like, are you feeling anxious, depressed? Are you sleeping well? Are you, you know, practicing mindfulness meditation? I actually want you to take a completely different perspective. And I want you to think about physical metabolic health. Because if you can restore physical metabolic health, that can have a powerful effect on your brain function. And so I want you to probably, some of the metrics that I would be most interested in, and these are science-based, so I've got studies to back this up. But probably one in particular is your glucose regulation or your level of insulin resistance. So insulin resistance is highly associated with metabolic disorders like obesity and diabetes, but insulin resistance is also highly associated with mental disorders, depression, anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia. And you know, one longitudinal study of kids actually found that kids beginning at the age of nine who had the highest levels of insulin resistance were 500% more likely to be at risk for bipolar or schizophrenia by the time they turn 24, 500% increase. Not a trivial increase. Th these are real connections that are powerful and meaningful. So how do you know if you have insulin resistance? Well, I mean, one thing is you could, if you have access to a glucose meter, you could check your glucose first thing in the morning while you're fasting. Ideally, it should be less than 100. Um, if it's greater than 100, and especially if it's consistently greater than 100, then you've already got signs of insulin resistance. And if you're also having depression and anxiety, I'm here to tell you those things are definitely connected. Now, there are lots of things that can cause insulin resistance. I mean, there are other ways to measure it. You could talk to your doctor or another healthcare professional, or you can Google it. So some people get like continuous glucose monitors. Some people get insulin levels checked, or hemoglobin A1C. So there are lots of ways to assess levels of insulin resistance. But if you know you've got it, then we need to think about, well, why do you have insulin resistance? And insulin resistance is more than just a bad diet. So a bad diet can definitely play a role. So if you're eating lots of ultra-processed foods and junk food and having dessert every day after meals, those 100% are playing a role in your insulin resistance. And making some changes there may not only improve your insulin resistance, but might improve your depression and anxiety. So I just spoke with a guy the other day who actually read a preview of my book. And as a result of that, he actually was ready. He's been having anxiety symptoms for a long time had been practicing mindfulness and meditation for years, had been adding relationships and stress reduction and all these things, and none of it was working. And he was ready to say, okay, I'm going on meds. And then he read my book. And in three weeks, he implemented two or three strategies for my book. And one of them was he changed his diet and reduced his carbohydrate intake. But he also focused on sleeping better, and he also focused on getting some light in the morning, some like, light exposure in the morning. And those three interventions, just in three weeks, he said, I feel like a different person, and there's no way I'm going on medications now. And so simple, practical things that people do have control over can make a huge difference in the way you feel and think.
I'll stop there. I could go on for days with all the markers that we could measure and all the strategies that might be useful, but that's, those are just a few examples. I love that. I love that. There have been two of those that you actually said from this individual that I've implemented. One, light in the morning. I get 10 to 15 minutes of natural light, even if there's, you know, overcast on a day. And I know uh, Dr. Huberman has spoke about that quite a bit on his podcast, and I've read several uh, studies on that. I've also brought on some sleep experts too as well. The next one was actually getting into a routine with my sleep habits, specific going to bed at the same time, waking up at the same time, and focusing on my circadian rhythm. Those two things have completely changed uh, an aspect of my mental health for sure. And this keto aspect now is something that I'm I'm going to start digging into, and I hope a lot of other people are doing the same. And I can't thank you enough, Dr. Palmer. This was remarkable. Thanks for listening to The Motivated Mind with your host, Scott Lynch. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into the truth about mental health with Dr. Chris Palmer. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok at Motivated Scott. Don't forget to join me every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. I love you all, and thanks so much for listening. Motivated Mind is a legacy division.